Uh, I don't know about you, but I always feel that the sun shines a little bit brighter the morning after a Buckeye win. (laughs) Uh, So um, I wanted to start with a little story. And that's the story of the first time my daughter, or my oldest daughter, rode what her first non-kitty roller coaster. My oldest daughter's Emma. Uh, she's six years old, and uh, when, when she was six years old, she's 15 now. Uh, that's scary to think about. Um, when she was six years old, we were at Disney World with my family, and um, she wanted to ride Space Mountain. Has anybody been on Space Mountain before? Yeah. All right, so, I mean, as far as roller coasters go, it in and of itself isn't a terribly intense roller coaster, but if you're six, it can be pretty pretty rough because it's pitch black, twists and turns. You don't know which way you're going to be going. And so I was a little nervous, but I, I was like, yeah, let's do this. So, you know, we get in and she wants to ride up front. So it, I don't know if you've, if you've not been on it. It's, they're not rows. You don't sit in rows. You sit in a single file line, one behind the other. So she's right up front by herself. And we get going and we hit that first drop and she just lets out a blood-curdling scream. And I'm like, oh no, I've made a huge mistake. She might throw up, and it'll be this horrible thing. And so uh, as we're going, I've got my hands on her shoulders. Emma, are you okay? Emma, are you okay? And I can't hear. The sound of the tracks, uh, of the cars on the tracks reverberating off the, it's an indoor roller coaster. It's so loud, the wind whipping past ears, I can't hear a thing. And so finally we make it around through the end. We, we get out, I, I hop out, and I lift her up out, and she's standing there, and she is stark white. Her hair is all puffed out, and her eyes are as big as dinner plates. And I'm like, Emma, Emma, are you okay? Are you okay? And she goes, can we do that again? (laughs) So I I was really glad it worked out that way. Uh, Could have been much worse. But if you've been uh, tracking along with us through the last several weeks of 2 Samuel, um, you, you might get the sense that David's life is nothing short of a roller coaster, right? And it, it seems maybe a little fortuitous to me, or maybe Justin planned it out this way. I don't really know. But the last time I got up here to teach, it was on Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, and that's when God gave the Davidic covenant, and that was the height of, of David's life and uh, the, the top of the roller coaster for him. And now, in chapter 18, David's hit the bottom uh, with the death of his son Absalom, which I know is a spoiler. Sorry. But you've had 3,000 years to, to read up on that, so that's on you, bro. All right, so um, I'm going to kick us off with a little prayer and then do a little recap and we'll jump into the scriptures. All right, so pray with me. Uh, Father, uh, I thank you for your word uh, that you, you speak to us, that you give us what we need to know you, to draw near to you, and to have hope. And so... Holy Spirit, I ask, I ask that you come down. I ask that you be here, that uh, that wouldn't just be me spouting out words, but uh, Holy Spirit, that you'd be speaking to the hearts of each and every one of us here, and that what is of you would remain, and what is of me would be the chaff that burns away. So be with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so a recap. Uh, David's son, Absalom, has uh, brought up an insurrection. He's stolen the hearts of David's people away from him. He has run David out 
of Jerusalem. He set himself up as king, and now he has mounted a vast army intent on killing David. And David's death is what will seal the kingship for Absalom. And um, David is severely outnumbered as we, as we come into this story. And um, I'll, I'll jump in. We'll read uh, the first eight verses. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to say. Uh, we're going to go three, three places, uh, three, uh, three high-level areas. We're going we're gonna to look at a battle. We're going to look at a burial. And then we're going to look at a broken father. So now, let's jump into the scriptures. All right, so uh, then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. All right, so with regard to the battle, I want to start by having a little caveat here. I, I think that when it comes to somebody like David, we tend to fall on one of either extreme when we look at him. We, we tend to look at him either through uh, glasses that are too rosy, and we tend to think of him primarily or only as the man after God's own heart, or we go to the opposite extreme, and we see him as uh, primarily or only the man that, that raped Bathsheba and uh, killed her husband Uriah. But the truth is, David's human. He's both of those things. And, um, and he's not a monolith. He's not monolithic. And so there are things that we can, uh, good things that we can learn from him, and then cautions from his life that we can take as well. And so I want to start off just by focusing on some of the good things here. And, and with regard to the battle, uh, I want to look at David's strategy. So there are three things here. First is that David plans... And so when he retreated from Jerusalem, it was a tactical retreat because he knew that Absalom, in order to take over the throne, would have to come to him and kill him. And so he sets up his army in the forest of Ephraim because while Absalom has the greater force, David has the more elite force. He's got the better tactical leadership. He's got the more battle-hardened soldiers, and he has his mighty men. And so he sets up in the forest because unlike in a field where less skilled soldiers can still see everything, they have an idea of what's going on, in the forest there's going to be confusion. And so Absalom, Absalom's numbers are going to count for less, and David's smaller numbers will count for more because of how seasoned they are, less likely to become confused. And then we see that David also organizes his troops. It says that David broke up his troops into, uh, under three general groups, three groups headed by a different general. 
And this is a reference to, to judges. We see uh, the, 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 the judges do this as they go into the battle. And then he, we read that he uh, set them up under commanders of, ten, or of hundreds and thousands. And that is a reference to Exodus, where uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, encourages Moses to organize the people that way so it's more uh, efficient in how they handle the, the issues that they have. And so what the writer here is doing is he's setting us up, showing us that David has a good plan in place. He has the superior plan. The next thing we learn from David is that he listens and submits to the wisdom of his troops. Specifically, and key here is that they're his inferiors, and yet he still listens to them. His troops say, he's like, I'm going to go out to battle with you. David's a fierce warrior, and they know that. Uh, he's no coward. But they say to him, David, all Absalom wants is you. He's got the greater force. Once he sees you out on the battlefield, all those forces are going to be pressed in on you because once you are dead, the battle's done, and we've lost. And so David listens to this wisdom, submits to it, and, um, and goes back to the city of Mahanaim. And then we see that David trusts. He trusts in his men. He, he goes away, letting them uh, fight the battle there for him. He trusts them to do that. Uh, and you can also see that he, he even expects to win. You know, when, when he said, uh, for my sake, deal gently with the young man Absalom, he's expecting that his forces are going to win and that they're going to capture Absalom. So he's worried that they'll kill him. So he expects them to win. And then also he trusts in God. And we don't actually read that in this verse, but we know it from Psalm 3, that throughout this, this whole process with Absalom, he's been leaning on the Lord. Excuse me. And so David, David plans, David uh, listens to wisdom, David trusts his men and God, doing all these things right. But what's interesting is that when we get to the end of the chapter, verses 28 and 31, we, we find that the victory is attributed to the Lord. And this is interesting, right? Because I, I think that when we, when we see things like this in the scriptures, we tend to, to believe a lie that I think has become prevalent in, in, in the church in America. And that lie is that God helps those who help themselves. David's done everything right, therefore God gave him victory. But, but this is a lie, and it, it's a lie because it's prideful. It's about what we do. And the reason this lie has been effective is because there's a kernel of truth in it. And in every effective lie, there is a kernel of truth. And that kernel of truth is that when, when we make good decisions, when we do good things, our lives tend to go better. But that's, that's not a guarantee, because we look at the lives of people like Job. We look at the lives of people like uh, John the Baptist or Paul or even Jesus, especially Jesus. Jesus, who did absolutely everything right, and yet was still homeless and uh, executed as a criminal unjustly. And so uh, what I've done is I've sort of rewritten this, this lie into a truth, and uh, that is that God helps everyone but especially those who know they cannot help themselves and cry out to God for their help. Not near as pithy or clever, but I still think worthy of a tattoo. So um, it's like just get a nice big spot, show off your ink, it's great. Uh, but uh, the reason it's not pithy is because I'm trying to put in some truths there. And so the first of those is that God actually doesn't just help those who help themselves. He helps 
everyone. We read in Matthew 5.45, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. The reformers referred to this as common grace. God is a good and merciful and gracious God. He gives good things to all his people, to all creation. Second is that our work is pointless unless God is the one who upholds it. Psalm 127, one through two says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So there's nothing that we do that can find success unless God is behind it. So helping ourselves isn't a thing. We're successful because God has given us success in whatever it is we're looking at. And even beyond that, and the reality is that we can do nothing apart from God. And so John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then finally, uh, God is especially close to the poor in spirit. Mark 2, 16 through 17, we read, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus did not come to call those of us who have it all together. He came to those of us who know that we need help. Next, I want, to, I want to zoom in on one particular verse, and that's David's plea in verse 5, where he says, and uh, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And I, I want to put you in the shoes of his soldiers, because we are told that everybody heard this. Now, you're one of David's soldiers, and you've watched as Absalom has divided the country against David, has risen to the throne, driven you and your king out, and is now pursuing you to the death and your king is asking you, you're laying your life on the line for him, and he's asking you, deal gently with the usurper. How would you feel? You feel betrayed. David, get your act together, right? And what the, the author is doing here is showing us the state of David's heart. And as we've seen through Second Samuel, uh, David has two primary pet sins that he won't let go of. And the first of that is his objectification of women. So that with Bathsheba, we see that with all his concubines, his wives. And the second is that he idolizes his sons, not his children, because we saw what he did with Tamar after she had been raped. Nothing. He idolizes his sons. And this is why he's refused to bring justice down upon Absalom. And then when it gets to the actual battle, the, the writer actually spends little, very little time describing the battle itself. He does throw in this really weird phrase uh, that I wanted to touch on, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Um, was this some sort of Tolkien-esque uh, event where it, it, the Battle of Helm's Deep, i got a picture here of it, where the uruk are fleeing into the trees, and the trees start shaking, killing up all the orcs. Is that what happened here? I don't think so. Uh, we, I mean, God's done stranger things, uh, but I think this is just the writer's way, creative way of saying David's strategy worked. Um, and then, uh, but more importantly here, with this victory, we are told that 20,000 men are dead. And I think the, the writer is pointing this out because he's drawing a, a, a contra uh, he's contrasting 
the two numbers that we've read. The first number that we read was 10,000, where David's soldiers said to him, David, you are worth 10,000 of us. In other words, uh, David's men were so faithful, so loving of David, that they wanted to spare him. They were willing to risk the 10,000 of their own lives in order to protect his one life. But now that we read that 20,000 are dead, what we see is David's heart. That essentially what David was saying was that I'm willing to sacrifice 20,000 of you, the people I'm supposed to be shepherding, in order to protect my one treacherous son, to avoid having to bring justice on him. David's all mixed up, and it's led to massive death in his, uh, of his people. So next, let's look at the burial. Uh, verse 9, we're going to start with. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Now, personally, I think that this happens to be one of the most uh, creative single verses in all the Old Testament, uh, and that's because it's really packed. It's laden. It's dripping with symbolism, and I want to unpack that a little bit here for you. Uh, first, we read that Absalom's head caught fast in the oak. Uh, and I do think that this is a bit of divine intervention. I do think, um, I, I don't think it was necessarily that we had some sort of Disney princess event happening where squirrels and birds came and tied up his hair into the, into the tree, but I do think that God intervened because he was going to judge Absalom. And uh, Josephus points out something interesting. Josephus was an ancient Hebrew historian for the Roman Empire, and he's one of the first that we see that makes this connection. Because the Hebrew word that's used here for head is the actual word for head, rosho. It means his head. Um, but Josephus makes the connection between that and, and Absalom's hair. And this is a, a literary device called synecdoche, where you use the hold to represent the smaller part or vice versa. And so he makes the connection, uh, and it makes sense, to, to Absalom's hair. Why? Because back in chapter 14, when uh, the author is describing Absalom, he describes Absalom as the most beautiful man in Israel, not a single blemish from the top of his head to the sole of his foot, and his hair was thick and beautiful and lush. I think Jake gave us a picture of Uncle Jesse, uh, and that was very accurate. Um, and so Absalom's hair was symbolic of his pride. And so the, what the writer is pointing out for us is that it was his pride, his narcissism, his uh, love of self as opposed to love of God is what eventually led to his downfall. It's a bit of poetic justice. Next we read that he was suspended between heaven and earth. And I think there are three things we can pull from this. First is the literal meaning. Uh, literally, he was hanging in midair. Uh, but there are two metaphorical meanings I think we're meant to pull from this. The first metaphorical meaning is that Absalom is on the brink of God's justice. Absalom is neither on earth nor in heaven. He is awaiting, he is between. He is on the brink of being judged by God. And second is that Absalom is under God's curse because we read in Deuteronomy 21, uh, verses 22 and 23, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. So him hanging there from this tree shows us that he's about to be judged by God and he is under God's curse. And third, we read, while the mule that was under him went on. And again, there's a literal meaning here that the mule just walked away from him, leaving him hanging there. 
Uh, the mule didn't care a whole lot for his rider. But I think more importantly, uh, the mule was symbolic of the royal house of David. It was a royal steed that David and his children would ride. It was a, a kingly, a, um, a royal animal that, that they would ride. And one commentator I read even said that the mule may have been the emblem of the house of David. And this is why when we read in the New Testament, when Jesus enters Jerusalem before he's crucified, he comes in on a mule or a donkey, that uh, he's making a statement there. He's making a statement, not just that he's coming in as a king, as royalty, but he's coming in as the seed of David. And so what we see is symbolic with the mule walking away is that everything that Absalom has fought for, the kingship, the thing that he's lusted after, is now slipping away from him, and there's nothing he can do about it. And I tend to be overly analytical in my mind. Uh, and so I want us to sort of step back and look at this picture and, and, and feel what the writer's wanting us to feel. Think about who Absalom is. He's beautiful. He's beloved by people. He has the ability to speak and sway the hearts of men. What potential was there? What greatness he could have brought for the kingdom of Israel, for the, for the glory of God. And yet now he's hanging here limply and helplessly awaiting death. I think we're meant to let that set on us, the, the, the weight of that tragedy. I think we're meant to feel that. So I'm going to summarize the next few verses. Uh, essentially what happens is a soldier finds him in this state, runs off, tells Joab. There's a back and forth between the soldier and Joab that I wish I had time to get into. But eventually what happens is Joab comes to Absalom, shoves three spears into him, and then we pick up in verse 15, uh, 15 through 18. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit uh, in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one of, to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. So now we're given Absalom's actual burial. And uh, so Joab buries Absalom according to the law, like we read, uh, sets him in, into a grave and just summarily tosses his body in and piles up a bunch of stones. But then the author gives us this picture of this monument that Absalom built. And I know Justin referred to this a couple of weeks ago, that uh, in the, the writer is making a, a, a contrast here again. And what, what the writer is saying is, look, uh, well, first, Absalom, uh, it's likely, uh, we know that Absalom had three children, and it's likely that they died uh, after or before that this happened. So Absalom builds a monument to himself so that people remember him for his greatness. And now the, the writer is contrasting this monument that Absalom built with Absalom's grave. And essentially what's being said here is that Absalom sought to glorify himself. He sought to make a great name for himself, and the end of that was his death. What became of his monument amounted to nothing more than a pile of rocks that hold a dead and rotting corpse. And such is it for us when we seek our own glory instead of the glory of God. Um, so, they're, they're, interesting story. There, there stands today in Jerusalem a tomb that is called Absalom's Monument. 
uh, or Absalom's pillar. And historians only date it to the first century, so it's not likely having, having anything to do with Absalom himself. But for centuries now, and to this very day, people will walk their children past this monument. And as they walk past, they cast a stone at it. And they say, Cursed be the memory of rebellious Absalom, and cursed forever be all wicked children that rise up in rebellion against their parents. Yikes. Right? But, but we see that, yes, was Absalom remembered forever? Oh yeah, he was remembered forever, but not for what he wanted. He, was, he wanted to be remembered for his greatness, but he was remembered for his failure, his rebellion. And so, what are we to take from this, this portion of Scripture here? I think the, the obvious answer, first and foremost, is, is that we're, we are to discipline our children. All this comes down to the fact that David refused to discipline Absalom, refused to bring justice upon Absalom. And we find that with our own children, if we start when they're young, disciplining when they're young, the consequences are much lighter. The older they get, the more power they have, the more har- uh, harm they're able to do to themselves and to others. And so I think we, we often withhold discipline from our children for a couple of reasons. One is we idolize them, let's be honest. Um, they're little versions of us running around, and so if they look good for us then, uh, we look good. And so we, we we're afraid to discipline. We don't like hurting them, right? We want them to be happy. But secondly, disciplining children is hard. I don't know, I, I, I don't know about your kids, but they're stubborn little buggers. Right? They're consistent in their rebellion, and so you have to be consistent in your discipline, and it gets hard and tiring. But what we learn from God is that discipline is a blessing. I'll bring up the, the, um, the verse references here. I won't, I won't read them uh, for time's sake. But what we learn is that God disciplines those that he loves. So discipline is a blessing that we are to give to our children. Discipline is, a sign, is actually a sign of love and affection for our children, that we delight in our children, according to Proverbs 3. And then discipline yields peace and righteousness. So if we refuse to discipline our children, we are refusing, refusing to give them these good gifts of God, and we're not setting them up for success with the discipline of the Lord. But I think more importantly than that, what we are to take away is that we are all Absalom. And you might be thinking, Nick, that's, that's really harsh. Right? I, haven't, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't fomented insurrection. I, like, how could you compare me to Absalom? Well, again, Justin uh, touched on this last week. What is sin? We, we read about it in chapter 3 of Genesis. It's the first time sin enters into the scene. And what is it that the serpent does with Adam and Eve? How does the serpent tempt them? He tempts them with the fruit, but what did the fruit represent? He came, the temptation came with the promise that if you eat of this, you will be like God. And ever since then, that has been every single sin that we do. It's us replacing God as a ruler of our lives. Us saying, God, you don't know what's best for me. I am better suited to determine what is better for me, so I'm going to sit on the throne. I'm going to make my own decisions. And so we're no different than Absalom. We have rebelled against our heavenly Father in every way. So I want to ask you, I've got some, some questions, uh, application questions here, but I want to focus on one of them. What are the monuments that you're building? What are the things that you are holding out to the world to say, look how great I am? Is it your career? Is it money? 
Is it sex? Is it your children? Is it your piety, your beauty? What is it that you're building so that you will make your own name great? And then ask God, what does it look like to tear that down? All right, so then we move on to a broken father. And uh, I'm going to summarize here just for time's sake. Again, there's so much packed into this. I wish I had time to dive into it. But to summarize verses 19 through 32, essentially what happens is after Absalom's dead, uh, Joab ends up sending two carriers to deliver the message to David. Uh, the first one who gets there delivers the message and says, hey, the Lord's brought you victory. And, at, or, and David's question is, okay, how about Absalom? Yeah, yeah, that's great. What about Absalom? And the first carrier chickens out and said, oh, I don't know. There was a commotion. The second one comes in and says the same thing. The Lord's given you uh, victory. And David says, yeah, yeah, yeah. What about Absalom? And this, and this person delivers the actual news to David. And now in verse 33, the last verse in the chapter, we read David's response. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So when we look at this, the, the author is opening up a window into David's grief for us that we don't, that we don't get anywhere else. In fact, there, there are four different places where David has mourned the death of somebody that he loved. And they're different than this instance. So in chapter one, we see where David mourns the death of Saul and Jonathan. In chapter three, we see that David mourns Abner. In chapter 12, David mourns his child that he had with Bathsheba. And then in chapter 13, he mourns his son Amnon. And there are two things that we learn about this grief and how it's different here in chapter 18 from what we saw previously. And the first is that David's grief is deeper here than it is. Uh, um, like I said, the, the, the writer opens up a window into David's grief, and it feels almost obscene for us to be looking in at a man mourning his, his child, the death of his child this way. It's deep. We see David's pain. We feel David's pain. But second, it's also darker. It's a darker grief than the other instances. And how do we know that? It's because the language that was used in the preview, the four previous instances is all consistent. The Hebrew word baha is the traditional word for to weep. And that's the word that's used in all four of those instances. It's used here too, but another word is added that gives additional color. And that word is the Hebrew word ragaz. And what it means is it means to literally to shake violently. And it's a word that's used of earthquakes and violent storms. And so what we read is that David shook violently. David's broken. He's hopeless. He never lost hope in those previous deaths, but here in Absalom, he has lost hope. Why? Why? What's different here? Well, we read uh, Michael Milton, who is the author of a book called Songs in the Night. And he's got a, a, a quote relating to this very verse. He says, David cries the cry of a man who wishes that he could go back and change the clock. 
if only he had not taken more than one wife, if only he had repented of that and sought to bring peace to his family, if only he had not plotted the murder of Uriah, if only he had intervened as a parent to deal with the horrible situation with Tamar and Amnon and to quiet the heart of Absalom, if only, if only. These are the saddest words in the English language. You see what's happening is David is looking back on his legacy. As he thinks about his dead son Absalom, he looks back at his legacy and he sees in his wake nothing but carnage and wreckage. His failure over and over to do the things that he should have done that led to this moment. He's got a wife that's his through rape and the murder of her husband, who was one of his most loyal servants, a dead child because of that. And then his, uh, his oldest son, Amnon, rapes his sister. And then we have Amnon being killed by Absalom, Absalom foaming, uh, rising up an insurrection, taking over his people, and now there are 20,000 dead Israelites because of all this. And David realizes in this moment, this is his fault. We know it's Absalom's fault as well because God has judged him, but David realizes that things could have been different if he had done what was right. And I want to point out something, I think, interesting here. Back in ancient Israel, when people would name their children, typically what would happen is they would give them names that had to do with something that was happening with the family then and there, or something that they had hoped for themselves or for their children in the future. And Absalom's name means father of peace. Ab is Hebrew for father. Shalom, Hebrew for peace. Father of peace. And it's tragic because he is anything but the father of peace. Nor is David. In fact, David is denied the ability or the, the, the blessing to build the house of the Lord, to build the temple, because God said he is a man of bloodshed. And we know the curse that God placed on him after Bathsheba and Uriah, that the sword would not depart from David's house. David was not a father of peace. You see, um, Absalom was born when David was consolidating power. After the death of Jonathan and Saul, uh, David was fighting the, the, what remained of the house of Saul to consolidate his kingship. And so he, he wanted to see himself as a father of peace. He had hopes for what Absalom would be, but they're dashed. And instead, Absalom is not a father of peace. He is a child of rebellion. He's a child of uh, bloodshed, a child of war, a child of disobedience. And maybe you're here today and you're feeling a little bit like David. As you look back on your life, you see a string of sin and failure, broken relationships, broken family, and you feel the weight of this darkness that David is feeling. And you know that in so many ways it's your fault. I want to ask you a question. And that question is, what is David's legacy? When we think back on David, how is he typically remembered? In the scriptures, he's remembered, he's remembered his legacy as that, as a man after God's own heart. That's his legacy, despite all this. I love scripture because it doesn't pull punches. It shows David, it lays David's sin bare for us to look at and learn from. But it remembers him for his faithfulness to God. Why is that the case? It's because David serves a good God. It's not because David's good. And I want to introduce you to the two most beautiful words in all of Scripture. But God. In Ephesians 2, 1-7, we read, 
and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, when we look at Absalom and we look at David, the writer wants us to feel longing. He wants us to see their failure because we are meant to be longing for something greater. And we find that greater thing in Jesus. Jesus is the prince that Absalom wasn't. He's the prince that we've wanted this whole time. Because unlike Absalom, Jesus doesn't uh, turn our hearts into rebellion against our father. Rather, he leads us, he stirs up in us affection for the father, ending our rebellion. And unlike Absalom, Jesus doesn't lead us into civil war with our brothers and sisters or even war against our enemies. He leads us in war against ourselves, a civil war within, a battle against the flesh and sin in our own hearts. And unlike Absalom, who hung on a tree under the curse of God for his own behavior against his will, Jesus climbs up onto the tree bearing God's curse, though he was innocent, bearing God's curse for us for our rebellion. And Jesus is also the greater king, the greater David. And whereas David found himself in a dark pit of his own making, Jesus climbs down into our darkness, having none of his own, bears our darkness himself and lifts us up out of ours. And whereas David helplessly cries out, would that I had died instead of you, Jesus actually does. Jesus went to the cross, and this is the heart of the gospel. So if you're here, and you you would call yourself a believer, and you're feeling the weight of your sin, look to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And if you're here, and you're still questioning this whole God thing, this whole Jesus thing, this is the heart of the gospel. God is not finished with his creation. He's not content to let it rot, but he himself came down and bore the weight of our sin upon himself so that we might have a relationship with him. So I ask you, come to Jesus. Let's pray as the band comes back up here. Father, for those of us who feel they're in the darkness of sin, I pray a special comfort over them. I pray, Lord, that they would realize that their legacy is not in themselves. They are not the worst things that they've ever done, but if they are in you, They get Christ's legacy upon them. So, Father, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would speak to us, and we thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. Amen.